Good morning, everyone. I want to echo uh, the words that Brent has just said about the music this morning. It was uh, absolutely uh, perfect for where I'm heading and where I believe the Holy Spirit is sending me in this passage of Scripture. And Brent, I echo your frustration. I've been thinking, um, I sometimes overthink things. Uh, Karen will tell you that. Um, but I've been wondering if it's appropriate that we're going through the worst part of COVID in Lent. It's a season of death. But what comes after Lent is Easter. <clears throat> and I have a feeling that uh, the Easter uh, celebration this year may be uh, more significant than any we've had in many, many years because um, I got a a text message from my first cousin, Jane Eyre. Uh, yes, her name is Jane Eyre. Uh, and uh, uh, she's uh, a medical uh, health uh, person in the Leeds County area, and she reported that all of my dad's siblings, who are all now over 80, my dad would be 103 in August if he was alive. He was the oldest of nine. All the remaining will be vaccinated this week. And uh, so that's a wonderful thing that the people in the uh, long-term care uh, facilities and retirement homes are, are being vaccinated. And so uh, perhaps that's tied to the sense of expectation that uh, Lent and Easter brings for us this year. Thank you, Brent, for reading the scripture. And uh, I believe Alex has got the outline up already. That's wonderful. I tell you, this place is so well run. It's just great to have uh, the support that um, I've had each Sunday that I've spoken. Let's pray. Lord, uh, these are different times, um, and we do pray for their end. But we also do ask that whatever you're trying to teach us during this season, we will not only um, see it, but will respond to it in obedience, knowing that uh, you went through tough times too, and it's because you not only went through them, you endured them, that we have the experience of the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy in this very moment. We pray that you would speak to us now through your word, in Jesus' precious name, amen. I have a confession for you this morning. I'm not a movie fan. Now, I, I know the movies. I know the names of the movies. I know the, the pop culture stuff that's going on. I, I, you can be a pastor and, and not know what's going on in the culture. But I'm not a movie fan. I don't particularly like going to movies. Now, part of that is because of the way I was raised. I'm sure in the Brethren community as well as in the uh, Free Methodist community, there was kind of an aversion to going to movies. And uh, uh, it wasn't uh, seen as being normative in the Christian journey uh, for uh, committed Christians to attend the theater. It was the way I was raised. And uh, I guess you carry that with you all of your days, really. Some of those kinds of things that you were raised with as a child, uh, you, you carry them with you all the way through uh, your adulthood. However, 
I did go to see the movie The Passion of the Christ in 2004. How many of you here did that as well? Yes, many of us did. And many of the folks on Zoom I know that you have as well. Without question, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, sparked a great deal of attention at the time of its release in 2004. I'm not sure that we'll ever know all of the reasons why Mel Gibson produced the film. There's multiple theories. But after having seen the film, I do know that if his intention was to help us to see how horrible, how violent Jesus' death was, he succeeded. Crucifixion was a horrific subhuman form of capital punishment. No other form of death before or since comes close to the prolonged painful death of a criminal on a Roman cross. Christians over the 20 centuries since the crucifixion of Jesus have sanitized the cross. We read about it in the Gospels, but the words become familiar. And pretty soon, the enormity of Jesus' death for us becomes routine and taken for granted. But in Jesus' case, before the act of crucifixion ever took place on a hill called Golgotha, the beatings, lashes, and abuse that Jesus took was beyond belief. As I think about my reaction during the time that I was in the movie theater watching The Passion of the Christ, I admit that I could not watch all of it. I remember closing my eyes during a good bit of the scenes because I couldn't bear to watch. The sound was all you needed in order to know what was going on. And as memory serves me, at one part, during one part of the film, I found myself silently singing the words of the old song, some of you will remember. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he died alone for you and me. But it causes me to ask a question. Why did Jesus stay on the cross? Why didn't he call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free? The fact is that if it had been you or I on that cross and we had that power, without question we would have called the 10,000 angels. The answer to that question is found in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. Specifically two verses in this paragraph of Holy Scripture. And I'm going to focus on those two verses this morning. Verses 54 and 56. It happened the night before at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Judas and the armed gang arrived on the scene after Jesus had ended his final time alone with his heavenly Father in prayer. We looked at the Garden of Gethsemane last Sunday. Judas says, Greetings, Rabbi. And then comes that infamous kiss. The arrest, the gospel record records, follows immediately. No sooner had the arrest of Jesus taken place than one of the disciples, John tells us in his gospel that it was Peter, took his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John again fills in the blank by telling us that the servant's name was Malchus. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. A great word for our times too. And then this sentence. Do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How many, how many soldiers in a Roman legion? 6,000. 72,000 angels are at the disposal of our Lord before He gets to the cross. But, verse 54, how then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Verse 56, the confirmation of verse 54. But all this has taken place, Jesus says, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This morning I'd like to offer two reasons why Jesus stayed on the cross. First, he knew that the cross was the plan of God. He knew that the cross was the plan of God. From the earliest days of his life, Jesus had gone to the synagogue in Nazareth with his earthly parents. Every Sabbath day, the scriptures, obviously the Old Testament, had been read and interpreted by the rabbis. Tells you a little bit about the importance of the Old Testament. Jesus had heard these scriptures and understood that they taught that someday the Messiah would come. And how the people of Israel longed for the Messiah. How they needed a Savior. How they needed someone to rescue them from the clutches of the Roman occupation that they were enduring. Rome was the latest in a long string of conquering nations. Israel had been destroyed and or occupied by the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans for 600 years. Now think of that for a minute. Our country isn't even 200 years old. For 600 years, the people of Israel had known nothing but occupying nations. But the prophets taught that the Messiah would come. And when he came, the political oppression would cease. And for the Jewish people of the first century, as well as for the 21st century, their understanding of the Messiah was and is primarily political. The Messiah, the King of David, who would restore their land and their glory. But was that the primary purpose of the plan of God? Was that what 
the prophets actually prophesied? Well, partly, but not all. God's desire from the dawn of creation to today is to be in relationship with all people. But sin got in the way. Sin gets in the way, present tense. We want to please ourselves and serve ourselves rather than Him. Rebellion and willfulness and disobedience instead of obedience result. I heard Dr. Howard Hendricks give the best definition of sin I've ever heard. He said the best definition of sin is the song, I Did It My Way. That's sin. Sin's just basically, I did it my way. Sin got in the way. And what had to happen was that someone had to reverse the curse of sin and death. Someone had to take our place. And in that context, the prophets said that the Messiah would come and pay the price for our sins and redeem us from the curse of sin and death. That is the primary need of humankind. The primary need of humankind is not political, it's spiritual. And, and God forgive us for thinking that the answers to the issues in our society, in our global village today, are somehow going to be solved by politicians. They are not. They have not been solved. The issues of our world have never been solved by political leaders. That's the nature of human history. Primary need of humankind is spiritual, not political. And in the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, written 750 years before Jesus' death, one of those great places where the prophetic writings are about to be fulfilled in the cross of Calvary. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. I remind you, 750 years before this scene, these words were written. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Put away your sword, Peter. This is God's plan. I am the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. 
John, in his gospel, picks up this same theme, John 19, 24. This happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Quoting from the 22nd Psalm, verse 18. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I'll tell you why Jesus stayed on the cross. I'll tell you this morning why He didn't call 10,000 angels based on the Word of God. Jesus stayed on the cross because He knew the cross was the plan of God for His life. He knew that the Son of God had to pay the price for the sins of the sons and daughters of the human race so that restoration and reconciliation of the relationship between God and humankind could take place. Paul picks it up. One sentence, fantastic sentence of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was reason one. Here's reason two. The second reason Jesus stayed on the cross was because he knew that the cross was the life purpose of the Son. So the first reason is that it was the plan of God. It was the, it was the, the global perspective, again, if I can use that concept. It was the, the big idea that there had to be a plan of redemption to buy back the daughters and the sons of the earth. The second reason Jesus stayed on the cross because he knew that this was his purpose, specifically his purpose. So from the, from the general to the particular, from the global to the individual, the plan of God is the redemption plan. Jesus is the one to fulfill that plan. It's his own life purpose. The evidence is overwhelming that from an early age, Jesus knew what his life purpose was. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, at the age of 12, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He says that, of course, to Joseph and Mary, who are frantically looking for their son in the temple. I, I love Matthew 16, 21. That whole Matthew 16 passage is kind of the, the, the in-between. It's the beginning of the, it's the end of the, of the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter of Jesus' life. We call it the Caesarea Philippi Declaration. It's the 18-month mark of his ministry. And Jesus, after being with these 12 friends for these 18 months, says to them, who do people say that I am? And of course, who is it but Peter that ultimately provides the answer? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But instead of that being a moment of triumph for Jesus, what does he do? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must suffer, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And then in the in the hours after Palm Sunday, 
some Greek-speaking people come to Philip in John chapter 12, and they say to him these beautiful words, we would like to see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew, Andrew goes to Jesus, and, and we're never told if Jesus actually greets these people, these Greek-speaking people. We're never told if he is in conversation with them. But what it does is it sparks this, this cue in Jesus' mind that he actually ends up describing the final scene of his life. He says in John chapter 12, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Verse 27 of John chapter 12. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Put away your sword, Peter. This is the reason that I came to this earth. Jesus stayed on the cross because he knew that it was the overall encompassing plan of God from the dawn of creation, from the fall of Adam and Eve, before the beginning of time. And he knew that it was his individual life purpose. All right, I want to take those two concepts and take them from the life of Jesus and bring them over to our lives today. Two concepts that I, I think are absolutely crucial, especially in the day in which we are living. So two things in application. Number one, what is the plan of God for your life? What's the, the big idea in terms of the plan of God for your life. It's, it's simple. It's three words. To know Him. That's it. The plan of God for your life, for every human being on this globe, is to know Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The plan of God for your life is to experience the forgiveness of sin and the assurance of life after death. To have a personal relationship with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ by experiencing the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with God both here and in heaven to come. And you know what? There is Today is, is the best day if you haven't come to that place of saying yes to the, the saving grace of Jesus in your life, there's no better day than today. I know that most of us probably in the sanctuary and on Zoom already have made this commitment, but perhaps there's somebody that hasn't. And, and so I don't want this message to, to go by without inviting you to the best possible life there is on this earth. To live in relationship with Jesus. Is it easy? Is it trouble-free? No, it's not. Is there stuff you got to go through? Absolutely. But there's, there's a meaning and a purpose, even to suffering within the understanding of, of the Christian life that just isn't there anywhere else. This, today, is the day of salvation. 
So that's, that's the big idea. That's the, the global idea. The plan of God is the offering of salvation to every human being through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the big idea. Now, I want to take it to your life. And I want to ask you this morning, what is your life purpose? If you don't have a purpose in life, then there's really no reason for getting up in the morning. I was a young pastor in Renfrew, Ontario, up in the Ottawa Valley. My dad had pastored the same church from 1962 to 1970, Renfrew, Parkview Free Methodist Church in Renfrew. Uh, an older gentleman who lived to be 100 years old uh, was very much still part of that congregation. He lived long after I came to Peterborough in 84. Uh, but he'd retired, up and, and he only had two horses left on his farm. And I'm a young, brash, know-it-all young pastor. And so I go out to make a pastoral visit on this wonderful, wonderful farming. Still see the, see the place. It's such a beautiful place. And, and uh, so I said to Harvey, I said, uh, Harvey, uh, why have you got those two horses? Get rid of those horses. Those horses are tying you down. You've got to look after those. He said to me, get rid of those horses. He said, those two horses are the reason I get up in the morning. Now, that was uh, uh, his life purpose at that point. I would argue that wasn't enough of a life purpose. But my point simply is, I don't care what age you are. I, I knew exactly who I was as a pastor. I, I knew exactly, I, I could define my life without any issues whatsoever. <laughs> I knew who I was, and then all of a sudden, I'm no longer a pastor. I'll tell you, it's taken me five years to really come to terms with that and to try to understand what God's purpose is for my life. And I'm still in process on it. I, it doesn't matter what age you are. You've got to have a purpose. So, did Jesus have a purpose in his life? Absolutely he had a purpose. And I think the purpose is best summed up in a psalm that he would have uh, heard, uh, expounded by the rabbi in the synagogue in Nazareth. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. I would argue this morning that every one of us, no matter what our life purpose, and no matter our age, can have the life purpose of doing the will of God. Now, that takes me to the next thing. How in the world of wonder do I know what that is? And that is, at times, very, very difficult to ascertain. Very difficult. I want to give you four steps, very quickly, of understanding the will of God and coming to terms with what that is. Number one, Scripture. And you're not surprised by that. I mean, that's where we start as Christians. We start with God's Word both the Old and the New Testament, by the way. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that we don't understand the Old Testament in the context of the New. We do. As Christians, we do. But the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is inspired by God, and it is one of the ways in which we discover what God's will is. Prayer. Again, you're not surprised by that. Uh, prayer is how we, we enter into that 
personal conversation with the living God. And the worst thing that the Christian community has ever done to prayer is said that it's only done in a certain place in a certain way at a certain time. Uh, that's not prayer. I mean, that, that's a, a, a conversation with some kind of, a, of an authority figure that isn't your father. Uh, conversation with your dad, especially a relationship with, a, a good relationship with your father, earthly father, was a conversation. Same with our heavenly father. Number three, the counsel of wise friends. The older I get, the more I see this is so important. Who am I listening to? Who are the people that are influencing me? That's really important when you're 20. Really important. Uh, that's probably some of the kids that were at that event on the west side of Peterborough uh, probably are wishing they hadn't listened to some of the people that they listened to. You know what I'm trying to say. Who are you listening to the counsel of wise friends put around yourself all of your life people that are wise that have a sense of the 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 the, the purpose and plan of god in their own lives and we just are blessed with some good old common sense that would help a wee bit too and then finally the circumstances of life I know that in, in our lives, Karen and I, there's things that have happened that we never ever would have imagined. But out of those circumstances of life, God has shown us His plan, His purpose, His will. And so don't dismiss the circumstances that are troubling to you. It's God's way of trying to speak into your life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I, I don't think I've got the quote exactly memorized, but it goes something like this. Um, Pain is God's megaphone. Suffering is God's way of speaking into our lives. So if you're going through a difficult time, don't assume that it's not something that um, God can't use. In fact, it may well be that it'll be the most significant way in which God speaks into your life. So there, the plan of God for your life, globally, the big one, the big idea, to know Him. From the general to the particular, bringing it down, distilling it down. My own life purpose, doesn't matter what age I am, to do His will. There's so much unhappiness, dissatisfaction in our world today. It is the wealthiest generation in the history of the world that in which we live. And perhaps the saddest as well. And the reason it is, is because there's only one way to have meaning and fulfillment in life, and that's to do God's will. And Jesus knew that. So why did Jesus stay on the cross? Why didn't he call 10,000 angels? Well, actually 72,000 angels. Because he knew that his death on the cross was God's plan for the world and it was God's plan for him. Yes, yes. 
he could have called 10,000 angels. But thanks be to God, he did not. Jesus, our lives would not have meaning today unless you had stayed on that cross. Help us to understand that as we live out your plan and purpose, we too will find meaning in life in the midst of difficult times. In Jesus' precious name, amen.